And I said, Mom, you have to drive me to the star. Don't you see this is going to help to set women free? You know, this is going to help to change things. And for the first time, the first time, I think in her adult life, she, you know, I could see the tears coming into her eyes and her lips starting to quiver. And, and I said, you have to drive me, don't you see? And she said, okay, get the keys. We don't want what Julie did to turn this into a freak shop, freak shop, freak shop. Some people I'm sure had funny feelings about it. I know the men did. I didn't really care. It's not, you know, about skin color and, you know, all these other socioeconomic differences. You want your team to win. I'm Celine Yeager. I'm Sarah Gross. This is Nine. Voices for Title IX, powered by Inside Tracker. A podcast that tells the stories behind the law that changed everything. This is Nine. 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 Hey, Sarah. Hi, Celine. So this week is exciting because we have your interview or one of your interviews that you did with Bobby Gibb for this series. And, you know, I I think this is really interesting because along with being a pro triathlete for 14 years and an Ironman champion and you are the founder and CEO at Feisty, uh, you also have a PhD in women's history and you have shared that that your goal with with that is to take women and get them into the pages of history because we've been left out so much, right? And when I listened to this interview, all I could think of is I didn't know anything about this woman. So I was so glad that you pulled this page, you know, this forgotten woman out and you've put her in into the annals of history. And it was just really, really cool. And you can tell people a little bit about, about Bobby Gibb because what a what an amazing woman. Yeah, I was so thrilled. You know, honestly, we had asked, we actually had reached out to Catherine Switzer, who gets a lot of media attention around being, you know, is often said to be the first woman who ran the Boston Marathon, you know, and she actually got a bib that she put Kay Switzer on. So she was officially in the race. But, but Bobby, the year before, had actually, like, she had actually applied to get a bib and was told that women weren't capable. She was running up to 40 miles at a time you know just in general because she She was an ultra runner (laughs) yeah she before that was a thing like she was just like a girl who loved to run turned into a young woman who loved to run and she was got this letter back that sort of said like oh well you can't because women aren't capable of that and she's like what the hell like I did that last week or whatever (laughs) you know um and I just like I love this interview so much first of all Bobby's um turning 80 this year right so that like there is like that historical piece and the fact that she like at the time understood herself like when she you know you'll hear it later she starts to talk about how she understood in some way that she had to go there and prove that women could run 26 miles because she knew that they could because she did it even more than that even more than that though like she she's what struck me so much is she's she comes out of the gate with this interview talking about women's place in the world and how they were medicated and just you know sold dish soap and told that they should be happy Mm. the happiness should be and how clean their family's clothes are right but she saw that her mother was not happy but her mother sort of had bought into this and there's that moment where she's like literally talking to her mom saying we this is our chance to set women free and I that that just moved me a lot yeah yeah Likewise, it's other moment for me and I'm sorry I had trouble like introducing Bobby because she's so many things, you know, like she's clearly an athlete but she's also very has like a very spiritual side which you hear mm-hmm. coming out in the interview. She's also highly intelligent she went to law school as well and in that generation where, you know, like my own mother who's younger than Bobby still felt like she only had choices of nursing and teaching you know she definitely um she's just such a well-rounded person it's hard to introduce her uh, but she's also an artist and so like during the interview when she pulled out like she pulled out her sculpture and just had said like she had this image of like a woman being able to be feminine and strong at the same time and she needed to sculpt that and it's like wow you know like someone was able to have that vision 
at a time. Like it's easy to envision that now because as much as we um, do get pushback around what we're supposed to do as women and how strong we're supposed to look and everything else. Like, I think there is a cultural space for a woman to be strong and considered feminine now. Like that space has been opened up, but back then, like, I don't, who were her role models? You know, it's, it's, it's incredible to me, the vision this woman has. The goddesses were her role models. Like she talks about that, which is like so awesome. Yes. Yeah. It absolutely is amazing. Okay. I feel like we're, um, now let's let, let's let the show talk for itself. We could go on forever, but it was awesome. Yeah, exactly. So I do want to give a shout out. We do want to give a shout out first to our sponsors as well. Um, because you know, the ads aren't just here just to be ads. These are companies who, and, and we had, I should say this, like we had companies jump at this. Like when we were like, hey, we want to do this series about Title IX and the impact it had on sport. Like these are the companies that were like, yes, I really want to be part of that. We heard back from them really quickly. So um, yeah, so we'll just give a nod to them and then hear from Bobby. Raise your hand if you believe we need more women and more overall diversity at our triathlons. Now keep that hand up if you want to be part of the solution. The team at Lifetime, the nation's premier healthy way of life brand, is right there with you. Their main focus? The iconic Verizon New York City Triathlon, coming up on July 24th. For this year's New York City Tri, Lifetime replaced their registration lottery, added a duathlon distance, and implemented a rookie refund program, all to get more racers, like you, of every age, skill level, and background to take on the concrete jungle. They have women, but not enough. They have non-binary participants, but they need more. They have athletes from 39 states and 17 countries, but they want to cover every corner of the globe. Let's write a better future for endurance sports together. Visit nyctry.com today to reserve your spot to race the greatest city in the world. That's nyctri.com. Female hair loss is a topic few of us want to talk about, but it impacts nearly 30 million women, so we should. And that's why we appreciate that Bonafide's healthy hair and scalp product, Sylvessa, is one of our show partners. With Sylvessa, Bonafide designed the first comprehensive system designed to restore and protect hair and skin affected by estrogen decline from the inside and out. It consists of a three-part system containing a daily capsule, hair serum, and skin serum to be combined for healthier looking skin and hair. During a 12-week clinical study, Bonafide found that 92% of women saw improvement in hair volume, 82% saw improvement in hair thickness, and 67% saw improvement in scalp coverage. Over 8,300 uncompensated doctors in the U.S. recommend Bonafide's products. All of their products are prescription and hormone-free. And for listeners today, we want to give you 20% off your first purchase of Sylvessa and or any of Bonafide's products when you subscribe to any product. Just go to hellobonafide.com slash title9 and use the promo code title9. That's hellobonafide, B-O-N-A-F-I-D-E dot com slash title9 and the code TITLE9, all caps, T-I-T-L-E, and the number 9 for 20% off at checkout. For the best prices and free shipping, go directly to the hellobonafide.com slash TITLE9 website. That is their best offer anywhere, so check it out and use the promo code TITLE9 today. Hi, Bobby. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. It's such a pleasure to be here and to meet you. I'm very impressed with what you're doing. And, and I am very impressed with you. <laughs> I am, I, you know, of course I've heard your name for many years and, and read about your story, but uh, yesterday when I was preparing for this interview, I listened to this narrative podcast. You weren't actually interviewed on it, but it was about your story. And then it was a two-part podcast. I had your story and then Catherine Switzer's story. Um, and when the host was describing your journey and how much you loved running, you know, and your desire to like, 
it just, it's just this pure desire just to run and being told no. I actually started like weeping oh, <laughs> and I was, I was trying to get my kid ready for school. And she was looking at me like, what oh, is wrong? That's the sweetest thing I've ever heard. Thank um, you. So tell me, when did you first start running and when did you find that love for running? I first started running when I was about a year old. A year? <laughs> yeah, and I and never stopped. I mean, you know how, we, you know, first we crawl and then we stand up and we sort of walk and then we run. Well, I just love to run. And my dad would take me to, uh, we lived in Watertown. He worked at MIT. It was during the war. I was born in 1942. So this was during World War II. And he was working on the war effort. And we were living in Watertown. But there was a little park near where we lived, Waverly Park. And he would take me to the park. And I was just so filled with joy and energy. And it was green in the summer and the grass. And my little legs would just run, run and run and run and the world would kind of wish by. And uh, I just never stopped running. I, I always loved to run. And, and I grew up and I was still running and I, and I got through to school, I was still running. And I, I used to love to run in the woods with the neighborhood dogs. In, in those days, all the dogs were off a leash. They ran free, we had all about a half a dozen big neighborhood dogs. And I used to love to go up in the woods and just run and run and run. And then I'd flop down and I'd look up and you know, look at the sky and the clouds and the trees. And I just had sense of, a sense of joy, I guess. And then all my little girlfriends stopped running when they got to be adolescent. And I was still running in the woods with the dogs. I just always loved to run. It, it, I just got to listen, feel this universal energy kind of pouring through me and I, and and this is funny but from the and this might have come from my grandmother nana my nana i love my nana she was my father's mother and she was the most wonderful warm loving person and i just adored her and when i would visit her house we'd be out in her gardens and it was like the garden of eden and she had a tame cat bird that would eat raisins out of her hand and everything and so I felt I always felt this sense of love like love in the sunshine love in the wind love all around me love within all around I mean just I've always felt that I mean I feel it even now I mean even here sitting where I am and and uh and I think that's what really informed my running the, the sense of freedom and the sense of love and then as an adolescent, I began to see what was ahead of me as a woman in this society with the woman's very constricted roles. And I could see how unhappy my mother was. She was an intelligent, beautiful woman. And she had always wanted to be a journalist and travel around the world. I mean, she loved my dad and they loved each other, but it was, it was, it was the social convention of the times. It was very limited. Women couldn't even get a credit card without her husband's signature and so forth. So I, be, I was beginning to be, become very rebellious about this, this, this thing that I could see up uh, ahead. And so this, I grew up during the you know, 40s and the 50s. And so, so that's, so you asked me, when did I start to run? that was it. And I just never stopped. Yeah. I still yeah. run today. Wow. Okay. Okay. We'll come back to that. Cause I would love to know your running routine now, but, um, I, that's what the story is so relatable because I, I myself had that a similar experience of being a young person and realizing that my it's in a totally in a different generation, realizing that my opportunities were going to be limited because I was female. So like, when did you first, like, do you have specific memories when you knew or when you realized or when some message came to you? Like, how did you know that? I could see my mother and I could see all her friends. I could see the neighborhood and I loved children and I wanted to be married, but I could not live in this little box. And these women were radically unhappy because they'd had to give up themselves. I mean, a, a woman was supposed to sacrifice herself uh, for her family and her husband and so forth. And, and um, they were so unhappy. And so they, they started drink a little wine in the afternoon and take tranquilizers to kind of dull the edge of this 
pain of their their existence was you know cleaning the bathroom floor doing the laundry doing the shopping doing the cooking that's all they could do i mean that's it was no you couldn't you couldn't get into medical school you couldn't get into law school and if you did people looked at a professional woman as an oddity. I mean, she didn't fit in. She was not a woman because she didn't do, you know, she didn't, she wasn't in love with her dish detergent, you know, which is they, they tell you on the TV and your new vacuum cleaner and this is supposed to make you happy. And these women were very unhappy. And so I could see this even as, as a fairly young person. I think by the time I got into seventh grade, was probably when it really started to hit home mm -hmm. for me. And was running then kind of an escape from that in a way? Yes. Because I can imagine running, that would be very mentally yes. distressing. Running was an escape from these horrible constricting ideas and from my parents, especially ironically, my mother, she spent almost her entire adult life trying to get me to conform to these same bending norms that had made her life so awful. And I wouldn't, I was this free, untamable spirit. And I would go off and run in the woods with the dogs and um, just, I would feel free. So I was, I was running away from this social pressure and this parental pressure to conform to this. I was gonna go live in the wilds of Canada uh, and with my dogs and horses and not just anything to get away from this. And then in the woods, I found this freedom and I think I'm harking back to a time, my grandmother, my Nana, she had a sculpture of Diana, the goddess of the hunt, in, on her stairwell where she had a, she had kind of a little balcony there. And I, I, sub, I think subconsciously I must have picked this up that at one time women ran through the woods with their hunting dogs and, and she had a bow and arrow on her, you know, and it's like, uh, so this completely different view and image and stereotype of women than what was what had ruled the world for the past millennia, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, I studied ancient history, so I can picture what you're looking at with, oh, with Diana. Yes. And I you, know, you just love the ancient Greek. Absolutely. Yeah. And when, you know, I think this is going a different direction, but like cultures that have multiple gods with different genders, yeah. you know, the, yeah. the roles play out differently, you know? Right, right. It's completely different. Mm -hmm. And um, and these these gods and goddesses weren't taken literally. Mm -hmm. I mean, they represented certain aspects of reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember learning. Um, I'm not I'm not religious really at all now, but um, no learning that like there was a there's a Jewish tradition where uh there's a god Sophia who um it's Sophia means knowledge and wisdom right? right and I'm like oh imagine it just struck my imagination like imagine growing up in a space where you had a goddess of of wisdom called Sophia right. that was your god instead of you know a father and a son <laughs> or whatever you know well, the father and the son is fine but you know they're missing they're, they're missing, missing something yeah Mary is the remnant of the original mm. goddess, the great goddess, the great mother, mm. this idea of the mother goddess, the nurturer, the all giver, mm. and so forth was, is very, very ancient. And I think it's something that the human psyche craves yeah. is that, that union of the male and the female. Yeah. And, yeah. and each one of us, I think, has a male and a female part of us, the anima and animus. This is what Jung got into in his his theories too and this this idea of the female goddess not the warring gods uh -huh. but the the birthing this birthing and i remember i had my child a natural childbirth in fact born on the way to the hospital in the back of a camper wow <laughs> and, accidental uh, natural yeah. childbirth <laughs> kind of it was no i wanted to have it but it, i didn't realize it was going to be so quick quite so painful and take so long and so i thought well maybe we better just go in and i got into the van and the, so the kid was born on the way wow and i'm thinking oh they give medals for running marathons and women have been doing this for thousands of years i mean one of my ancestors had 13 children in in, in you know 13 children with no 
doctors anywhere in sight. Yeah. And, uh, and I think, oh my God. So this idea of the bringer of life, the giver of life, this must've been amazing to primitive people. Like, oh, this one human being growing inside of another human being and it suddenly emerges. It's like, how did she do that? Yeah. <laughs> this is magic. Like, and, and it was so amazing being pregnant because I could feel this little human being, you know, starting going through all the processes of evolution from one celled creature and then becoming more, going through all the all the, the phylums, and then finally emerging is this this baby. Mm -hmm. It's like it was the most miraculous thing in my life. Yes. I, I, I don't know. I just, and so this idea of woman as the giver of life, yeah. the bringer of life, the, the all giver is something that we really need to add. I'm not saying we should eliminate the other things that we should add to this warrior kind of mentality. And maybe this would help us do what I think we really need to do as a human race, and that is to eliminate war and just say, I'm sorry, war is murder. We can't, we can't do this anymore. It, 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 it's destroying, uh, we're destroying the human race. We're destroying the earth. We have to stop war. We have to have, we have to develop international institutions, a democratic international institutions through which we can solve these conflicts um, not trial by war, but trial by human uh, experience and human knowledge and human intelligence, mm. you know, and so that's a big thing I'm working on now. And I, I know it's possible. We just need to expand our consciousness another, another level. Yeah. And a lot of us already have, but, you know, we, we will. We, we're moving in that direction. Yeah. And I'm just hoping and praying that we can get there before there's another catastrophe. Right. I, I love your vision, by the way. <laughs> I love big fingers. my vision is that all the nations of the world are democracies in which every person on earth has human rights mm -hmm. and civil rights. And we have governments in which people, uh, governments through which people ensure their own human and civil rights and make laws uh, make laws that conduce to human well-being mm -hmm. and there are these international um, institutions through which we can resolve conflict mm -hmm. and we, we, we need to do that and uh, I was in preparation for this I, I was reviewing some of my memories and, mm -hmm. and uh, thoughts about growing up in the 60s and 70s, yeah. which we can get to if you want to, uh, but, the, but how, how the democracy works. And people are cynical about it. And they say, oh, it's a big mess. Everybody's disagreeing. Nothing ever gets mm -hmm. done. Yeah, well, that's part of democracy. You've got, in this country alone, you've got 300, what, 350 million people, individuals with individual ideas, individual values, all, how do you make all that work? and come out with something. But when you take the long picture and you look back at what we've done with this really new experiment in the world is democracy, is democracy at this scale, an all-inclusive democracy. And this is part of why I love the marathon because it is so de democratic. But so it's coming, so coming forward, we can see how that develops even even over the past you know two or three four uh, even four decades and uh, i i i just feel that this is the way the world has to go mm. and you said the marathon is democratic what do you mean by that yeah it's very, in many many ways um that was one of the things i had never heard of the boston marathon mm -hmm. and but i just loved to run and i was running as i say in the woods with my dogs and I saw the Boston Marathon for the first time and it's a, in 1964 and I fell in love with it. And I didn't think men or women, I just saw these people running and something inside me set and you know how irrational love is. And, and I said, I wanna be part of this mm -hmm. thing. I didn't know anything about the BAA or the AAU. It was just, but the fact that I was, I was sort of following my heart mm -hmm 
and I was following this inner directive that was telling me to do something that was all against all social conventions, way outside the social norm. And I didn't know if I could do it or not, but something had said in me that I was going to be part of this race. Mm. And so this sense that the marathon was open to anyone in the world, that's what they told me, anyone in the world. And of course, it started in ancient Greece. Yeah, anyone. And so it started in ancient Greece, you know, running from marathon to Athens. And of course, that was, that was a democracy, but it was only a democracy for male citizens. It, you know, slaves and women weren't included. But now we have this democracy, this huge democracy in which more and more people participate in this. And that's mm. part of what the, the decades of the 60s and 70s have been. And what we're still doing now is including people. So this is a new experiment, mm -hmm. you know? And um, this, I believe, uh, is the way of the future um, because the way of the past was that you'd, you'd have uh, a, a, a dictator who, uh, who with, with, by force controls everyone else in, in the society. And the dictators then fight with each other about territory and possessions and booty and who gets to uh, you know, capture the women and so forth, which to me is, is sick mm. <laughs> from my point yes. of view. It's not, it's not healthy. We don't need to be doing this. And so democracy, so I see so I see the marathon is this democratic sport. Mm -hmm. And and now, even now, now we have people from all over the world. When I go to the Boston Marathon, there are people there of all races, all religions, all genders, uh, you know, everywhere. And we just love each other. It's like a huge, in the 70s, we used to have love-ins. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We'd sit around and, and we just kind of sit and just glow with love and love each other. So it's like, we hugging each other with old friends, new friends. It's like a family reunion, but and there are all these artificial boundaries that people build, of, you know, race and gender and even age. Mm -hmm. uh, they're just not there, and uh, and so this to me is democracy. It's like it's who a person right. is matters, not what group they belong to, and so so there we are. It doesn't matter what group you belong to it's who you are as a person and so i think if we can do it in boston we can do it in the world that's that's my thing and that's really the way i want to see the world go and we're up against some problems but i do believe that is the way of the future i love that okay let's let's go to boston 1966 because you oh, applied to do the marathon like you tried to go through official right. channels am i right and you were right. You were denied. What were you told at that point? I was told that women were not physiologically able to run marathons. The longest distance accredited by the Amateur Athletic Union was a mile and a half. A mile the, and Boston half. the Boston Marathon is a men's division race. And women, of course, aren't qualified to run in men's division races any more than a man is qualified to run in a women's division race. Those are very definite fundamental rules mm -hmm. of racing. Mm -hmm. And at the time I had trained for two years and we can back up and I'll tell you how I trained, but I was running 40 miles at a stretch. Right. And I get wow. this letter, I get this letter from Will Cloney, the race director. Yeah. And, you know, uh, and I, I was living in California at the time. I crumpled up the letter, I threw it away, and I did what I always do when I'm upset or angry or just totally pissed off. And sad, I mean sad, I mean just here it is again. It's like, this is the tragedy of prejudice. If you belong to a certain group or a certain class of persons, you can't be who you are. You, you can't fulfill your destiny. You, you, these opportunities are totally denied to you. So here it was again, you're, because you uh, belong to this class of persons, you're not allowed, you're not even thought able to do these things. So how are you supposed to know you can do something if you're never allowed to try? And how can you prove you can do something if you're not allowed to do it? So I throw the letter and I run, I go out the door and I run, I run 20 miles up the coast to Del Mar, a little town right on the beach. 
I get to Del Mar, it's evening. I walk around, there are all these people cooking out on the beach and kids running around. And I walk around, people out there are so friendly. And so I'm walking around, oh, would you like a hot dog? Oh, would you like a hamburger? Ah. And so <laughs> they were feeding me. I mean, so I was walking, oh, sure, thank you. And then I'd sit around the fire for a while. I actually slept on the beach that night. And then the next day I woke up and I said, all the more reason to run. Now I have to run the Boston Marathon because now if I can prove this uh, false belief about women wrong, I can throw into question all the other false beliefs about women that have been used basically to keep women subjugated for the past how many centuries. And so now my run took on a social significance. It wasn't just for my own pleasure. Mm -hmm. And so now I really had a purpose. And so is it true? Then you got on a bus and traveled for days to get to Boston to to do the race? I got on a bus and I traveled for three nights and a little more than three days and got to Boston the day before the race, if you can imagine. I knew nothing about it. I knew nothing. I mean, I had no coach. I had never, you know, I could run. I was very strong by that time. And um, my parents thought I was nuts. Like, oh, she's gone around the bend now. And she thinks she's going to run the Boston Marathon. My dad was very worried about me. She thought, maybe she'll die out there on the course. And so that I, my dad went steaming off. He had to get to a sailing regatta. And I, and I said, mom, you have to drive me to the start. Don't you see this is gonna to help to set women free? I mean, you're not happy. You know, this is gonna to help to change things. And for the first time, the first time I think in her adult life, she, you know, I could see the tears coming into her eyes and her lips starting to quiver. And, and I said, you have to drive me, don't you see? And she said, okay, get the keys, get the keys. You know, I mean, I can almost, I think about it. her now and the how sad she was, you know. And so she drove me. We went out the course and she drove me out to Hopkinton. And I knew that if the officials saw me, they would stop me. And I even thought I could get arrested. I, and I didn't know. So my brother's Bermuda shorts, everybody knows this story in the tank top bathing suit. And these new boys running shoes that my friend in San Diego, Bill Gukin, had told me, you, got, you can't race in those nurses' shoes. They're too heavy. you got to get running shoes. And so I, I got these new shoes. And I didn't know you're supposed to break them in. I didn't know. I, my mother made a wonderful roast beef dinner with apple pie. I didn't know anything about carbo loading. I ate the, this, all this roast beef thinking, oh, this is going to make me really strong. And then... I get to, so she lifts me out of the car. I run all the way around. I start running immediately. I go all the way around. I see the starting line. I say, how am I going to get into this thing? I had a blue hooded sweatshirt, put my hair back. And then I found a little bush as close to the start as I could get. And then I went out and ran up and down in the alley for about 40 minutes. So I already run (laughs) three or four miles. That was your warm up. Yeah, before I even got to, and then... Um, I and then as the starting time drew close, I uh, I got back into the behind the bushes, and I waited until the gun went off and the men's division race left. Now I I was I didn't realize in this till later, I was the sole woman in the yet to be sanctioned women's division race, now called the Pioneer Division Women's Race. Right. So that year, the women's division race was actually about 30 miles and it wound all around Hopkinton. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then it joined in with a men's division race. <laughs> and, and I ran, ran, ran along um, to Boston. The men were really friendly. Thank goodness. Mm. They could have easily pushed me out of the race. Right. So it was. So when did. So you start running, you, ju- you, you run your few miles warm up, you jump into yeah. the race. You start running at some point did, you, you know, you must've had to take your hood down or some people must've started to recognize, oh, hey, there's a woman on the course. Like what was yeah. the reaction? Well, to that, I give the men credit mm. because it, it took about three minutes 
and I had my hood on and everything, those floppy shorts, the whole thing. Is that a woman? Is that a woman? They're studying my anatomy from the rear. And they very quickly realized I was a woman. And, and so I could hear them talking and I turned around and laughed. I wanted to keep it upbeat because I wasn't running against the men. I wanted to run with them. And, and they got that. They really understood that this, what my idea was, I would show that women could run a marathon and run it well. And then they would just have to open it up to women because they had no excuse now to keep it closed. So the men were really supportive. And then uh, I said I was getting hot with this. So I took the sweatshirt off. It was a hot day. And uh, then everyone could see I was a woman. And again, when you're doing something really far outside the social norm, people can be hostile. But in this case, people loved it. And the men were cheering and the women were cheering and, and uh, clapping and at a go girly. Even the policemen would go at a go girly. Don't let them catch you and this sort of thing. <laughs> and, and, uh, and it was just this great celebration of spring, which is what I always thought the marathon was. Right. Right. And you ran fairly fast. I mean, you ran 320 something. I know. And uh, the, the terrible irony is that I was on a sub three hour race for most of that race. And I wasn't tired. I, and I was holding back because I didn't know how much energy it was the first marathon I'd ever run. I didn't know how much energy I would need to finish. So I was always holding back, holding back, holding back, but keeping on this steady three sub three hour uh, mile race and then uh, we got to Wellesley mm -hmm. and of course the women went crazy and went Wellesley, Wellesley College about halfway yeah. and the women were out there in the street and in those days the, there were two lines and they'd hold hands and you had to run you had to duck down and run between these women and uh, and they were just going crazy and I've told this story so many times and there's one woman with a bunch of kids she's going Ave Maria Ave Maria <laughs> And then later I met um, uh, Diana Chapman Walsh, who was then a student, and she remembers this, mm -hmm. she later became the president of Wellesley. Mm -hmm. And she said, we knew you were coming because the press knew I was coming and the, a local radio station was broadcasting my progress. So they, uh, they were following me all the way. And so she said, we were looking for you, we were looking for you, you know, and then they let out the scream when they could see me. And it's like at that moment, we knew we could never go back. Like this, this really was a pivotal moment that, that was going to change things because, uh, and, and, and we all knew it at that moment, at that moment at Wellesley, we all knew that things could never be the same again after this. And, and I went all the way into Boston, but the last few miles, the horrible blisters on my feet, were they broke through into bleeding blisters and my pace dropped way off. I was tiptoeing along. At one point, I actually took my shoes off and I was running barefoot. They were so painful. And then the bottoms of my feet hurt. I put my shoes back on. And finally, I, I finished and I came down and finished. I mean, I knew I had to finish because I had this whole weight of responsibility. If I had not, if I had not finished, it would have set women back another 50 years. So I finished and I was disappointed in my time, but in retrospect, it was an amazing time. I finished ahead of two thirds of the other runners and I had drunk no water. I didn't know you're supposed to drink water on this hot day, no water, mm -hmm. uh, ble ble bleeding blisters <laughs> after a 3000 mile bus trip and a huge meal of roast beef that was still sitting <laughs> in this. I couldn't have done any more. I mean, anything, I, was, I had, I just no experience in this, yeah. you know, and I, oh God, I mean, it was amazing. I could run it all. It's an amazing accomplishment in and of itself with yeah. outside of the fact that, you know, you had just made this massive breakthrough for womankind, you know, I mean, it's, it's incredible. Did you, at this time, did you have other like friends, girlfriends in your life that um, played sport or that also liked to run, or were you kind of like an anomaly? I was an anomaly. I uh, I didn't. We. I mean, in high school, we played half court basketball. That was about it. I mean, no, there wasn't any. No, no other women. In fact, hardly any men ran. Um, but for a woman to run in those days was, I mean, it was thought improper. Yeah, it was just. Uh, it was. I mean, a woman had no way of supporting herself, besides getting married. And my mother was always after me, like. 
how are you going to find a husband? You have to find a husband. How are you going to live? How are you going to support yourself? You, you'll be a social outcast and you've got to stop running in the woods with the dogs, you know, and I wouldn't stop. And then um, she, later she said, you know, that I said, mom, you're finally on my side. And she said, it's something I should have done a long time ago. She said, secretly, I admired you. I just, I just thought I had to do this, uh, you know, to, for your own good. So it wasn't for my own good, but, but she thought, because she loved me and she, you know, she thought if I didn't conform that uh, I'd be in big trouble. <laughs> but I said, I can't conform. I'm going to change the world. Yeah. And you also, you also went to university and got a, at least a couple degrees as I, as I read yesterday. Yeah. Um, was that, again, was that like an unusual choice to go to university? Well, yes. Uh, my mother kept saying, you've got to take some typing courses to have something to fall back on until you get married. And in fact, my first job out of uh, out of high school, I was a nurse's aide, which which was good. I liked I liked taking care of people, um, but there wasn't much open for women. So um, so I guess uh, she was against the fact that I loved science. Of course, my dad was a brilliant scientist, and. Uh, when I was younger, uh, he taught me a lot of things. He got me a microscope, his first microscope that he'd had at MIT, and he gave it to me. And I used to look at things, and we'd get pond water, and I'd look at amoebas, and I was just fascinated with biology and this, this, uh, this whole idea, and physics, like cosmology. And uh, so I took courses in physics and biology and mathematics, which well, they, basically the whole class was men. And there I was sitting there taking this, uh, these courses. But this is the more I learned about science, the more amazing this, this universe seemed. I mean, it was almost like a spiritual experience. And I, um, and I did take a trip across. The, this is the way I trained for the Boston Marathon. I, I had a VW van and a Malamute puppy, and I drove from Massachusetts to California. And every day I would run in a different spot. All, and I was in love with this country. I was in love, I still am. I'm in love with this country and the people of this country, the people all across the country. And I wanted to, to see what the country was. And I'd never seen it before. So I headed west and I spent the first night in the Berkshires. At night, I slept out under the stars. I loved to camp. I'd been quite a good camper in my day earlier when I was young and I'd sleep out under the stars at night and then it, during the day I'd run wherever I was in a different place and I'd eat at truck stops and cafes and I'd meet people and talk with them and then at night as I got into the midwest there weren't so many just open woods where I could s sleep as there were in New England and I get out there and so I'd knock on farmer's door and I said would it be okay if I caught if I camped in your backyard, in your backfield for the night, and you'd say, oh, sure, help yourself. So I camped there for the night. And, and so I was just totally in love with nature. And then at night, I look up at the stars with my binoculars. And by the time I got to Nevada, it was just amazing. Because I mean, I was, I was so enthralled. Like, I was always, even from a young kid, like, why bother with all this? I mean, I still feel that, like, and the more I learned about the atoms and molecules and uh, how the cell, the intricate cell, as I learned how the, all these little chemical reactions going on and all that we have trillions of cells in our bodies and all these little chemical reactions going on and there's the DNA and you're translating it in a protein and all this stuff going on, like it knows what it's doing. And I mean, it doesn't know the way we do consciously, but it, it's it it's it's amazing it's it's miraculous it it increased my sense of spiritual awareness it didn't decrease it it wasn't against religion it was if anything it it was expanding my sense of the the miracle of existence like we don't know why it's here and for me knowing that i don't know is like a spiritual experience we don't know 
why it's here. And we have different ideas about how it got here. I mean, science has it and different religions have. We, but we really don't know. We have these stories we tell, but we don't really know. And when you, when you just come into the present moment and you're going, oh my God, we don't know why all this is here. We're breathing the air, you know, and, and we're moving our fingers and we're thinking thoughts. I mean, I'm thinking, how does this mass of pinkish gray material in our heads have a thought, have a subjective experience, see color, feel feelings? I mean, this to me, this is beyond the most miraculous mystery that, that could ever happen. And so I'm, I'm like totally immersed in this thing going across the country. Also, being an artist, it was beautiful to me. It was just beautiful. The patterns of dust in the road were beautiful. The trees, I'm going, wow, the trees are growing here all by themselves. <laughs> and everybody else is going, duh, you know, yeah, 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 the trees grow by themselves, a big deal. And I'm going, this is amazing. This is a miracle. They're growing by themselves. Nobody put them here. You know, don't you see how amazing that is, you know? And I get out to Nevada and I'm looking, I, I've never seen so many stars. And I've said this before, there were more stars than dark places. And the immensity of this thing, the immensity of it was just, it, it just blew my mind. I mean, I was in tears. I was looking up at this thing and I'm going, oh my God, we're this little tiny planet, this tiny, tiny planet rotating around a sun. Now, how many of us get up in the morning and say, oh, there's my favorite star on the horizon. And look at that, we're turning around and see this, we can see this star from all these different angles. And we're going around the star and the star is in an arm of a galaxy and the galaxy is in this universe. You know, that's that was my orientation. That's the way I'm thinking. I'm not just driving down Main Street and honking it, you know, pedestrians. Um, I'm, I'm driving through an arm of the galaxy, you know, and, and so I'm out here and this is like, uh, blew my mind and then on into California and plunged into the Pacific. It was just, it was just an amazing, amazing experience. And that's the way I trained for the marathon. Wow. Yeah, I really, what I'm hearing is like your love of learning and your sense of wonder you know, kind of came with you on this journey, like through running yeah. too, and also like perhaps helped you not to get bogged down. And some of the other things that you were observing, like, you know, like the plight of women, your own mother's challenges with her life, yeah, like the, yeah, I was... the opportunities that were maybe, um, not available, um, for us as women. Um, so I, I really, I'd like to do the podcast about title nine. Um, and that that law, oh, that oh, law yeah, coming through, through yeah I'd love to talk about that I know you went to law school yes. shortly after you did you went to law school no you did <laughs> oh oh yeah I could oh I went to law school too <laughs> <laughs> sorry no I I studied ancient history <laughs> oh, that's um, but no I actually kind of wish I'd gone to law school but um, I did not go to law school but I know that you went to law school shortly after that law came into place like when did you become aware that um, that there was a new law that was um, creating equal opportunity for women in a in an educational environment. Well, is as I say, growing up in the '60s and '70s, I was part of making those changes mm. uh, in different ways. I mean, running marathon was a pivotal event, mm -hmm. but before that, I was working on uh, on a lot of other things. And Title IX, I think that came in in 1972. Yes, if I'm that's not correct. Mistaken. 1972, and it was Birch By of Indiana, uh, who is the senator who brought that before the Senate. And I think it was um, Patsy Mink from, uh, from Hawaii and um, Edith Green from Oregon, who had originated this idea, this Title IX, if I'm remembering correctly. And um, and it it passed. Um, it, it it passed, and it changed dramatically. Changed the world of sports for women. It also changed uh, educational opportunities for women. It was I think it was originally an amendment to an education bill, and it changed. And so that opened 
opportunities in education and also then in employment, because depending on your education, you're more or less qualified for different types of employment. And so that um, that bill was was seminal, but it was part of a long line of civil rights advances that this country was making. And I, I mean, I remember 1964 when the original civil rights bill was signed into law by, uh, by Johnson. And a lot of us had worked for this thing. And I mean, Kennedy had conceived of it in the 1963. And then of course, uh, he never lived to, to see the actual thing, but so, so, but the civil rights, I actually remember, I, um, there was a guy named, I think it was Howard Smith, who was a representative um, and the original civil rights bill had uh, no, it prohibited discrimination on the base of race, religion, national origin, but nothing about gender. And then um, Howard Smith wanted to kill that bill because he was against integration. He, he was from Virginia, he was against integration. So he added sex to the bill and his opponents thought the reason he added sex was because he wanted to kill the bill and he did want to kill the bill. But uh, I remember when he said, and he thought sex should be part of it, the entire house of representatives birthed into hysterical laughter. Like what could be more funny than women having civil rights, equal rights and non-discrimination. I remember that, I mean, I lived through all this, but the bill passed anyway with sex, with the sex, which was fantastic. And um, so that was 1964. So that had, that had changed, but th this whole, uh, I'm trying to think, uh, Betty Friedan in 1963 had written a book called The Feminine Most Mystique. That, yeah, that really set the stage for, uh, for this. And she really depicted the problem, which is what I was seeing with all with my mother and with all the all their housewives that were on tranquilizers and wine, the Betty Ford syndrome, you know. And so this, so. So uh, that book really set the stage, but it didn't come up with any solutions. It was just, okay, the, here's the description and we got to change it or we got to get legislation. And so, so um, and interestingly, this is also entwined with something else that a woman did in 1962, Rachel Carson wrote a book called Silent Spring in which she, uh, she revealed that DDT and, um, and the air pollutants were, uh, were being absorbed by the plants that we eat going into our bodies. And they were also going into the bodies of birds and who, who are now laying eggs with such thin shells that the, the baby birds couldn't hatch. And so she was silent spring, there's no, no more birds singing. And so this led to the ban of DDT and the Clean Air Act in 1963, which I also worked for, Clean Air Act, and then the Clean Water Act came later, but Clean Air Act. And then there was no Environmental Protection Agency. And a lot of us were working to get Environmental Protection Agency. We finally got an Environmental Protection Agency and so forth. So, so, in the, so the civil rights for, um, for uh, based on race and then the women's right, right, rights and the environmental thing were all kind of hand in hand coming up through the 60s and 70s. And the Title IX was part of that, part of that thrust. We're still working on that. And this is why I say democracy does work. It does. I mean, if, if you all you looked at was the horrible thing that was going on in the House of Representatives in the Senate, you'd oh my God, they can't get anything done. But when you look back over those two decades, we made a huge amount of progress in um, protecting human well-being and um, the planet. You know, clean air, clean water, and we're still working on it. Now we have more to go. 
but we're but we're on this trajectory, and so um, women's rights was kind of tagging along, yeah. and then. So it was in 1964, I saw the Boston Marathon and fell in love with it. And then and trained, and I trained for two years. Uh-huh. And, and then um, in 66, and in 66, I ran it and it was front page headlines. Oh, in fact, I have them right oh, here. Oh, you do? I think. Let's see. Yeah, let, let, you gotta see this. <laughs> this hub ride, can you see that? Oh, oh, you're, it's, your background is blurring it. Like it's not. Oh, it's blurring. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it says hub ride first gal to run marathon. There's a picture of me in my bathing suit. <laughs> and it's in, so it, that was, that w- went out all around the world. My parents mm. had friends in Malaysia and they wrote and said, Oh, congratulations on your daughter and so forth. And when I got to the finish line, the governor of Massachusetts was there and shook my hand. And it, it, it really mm. was a pivotal event. And not just the event, but the fact that these headlines went out all over the world yes. and people go, oh my God. And so this in, in some retrospective way uh, was an answer to Betty Friedan's question, like, what do we do? It's like, this was a way a woman, and in fact, women used to call me up and said, I just ran around the block and I feel so good. And I said, for a lot of women, this is the first step towards their autonomy. They can reclaim. Yes their own sense of self and their own sense of power and their own sense of their physical body. They don't have to just be passive objects. And, oh, can I show you one of my sculptures? Absolutely, I'd this, love to see one of your sculptures. This, um, I don't know if you can see it. Can you see Oh, that? I can, yeah, if you hold it in front of yourself, then it won't blur. Oh, like yes, that, uh, yes, strong, and It's a woman, yeah. so my idea was um, a woman who is strong and swift and beautiful and very feminine, and this is a this at the time was a completely different view of women. It was like uh, up until that time, if you look at all the classical paintings, they're all women languidly, sexually alluring, lying on couches waiting for men, or they're mothers with babies. Nothing like this. Nothing like a strong, autonomous woman who is living life as a person. And so, so this this thing, and women saw that, and they began to reverberate with it, and they started to run. And um, the next year, there were two of us running. The next year, there were five of us running. And then finally, in 1972, um, the Boston Marathon, uh, for the first time, had a officially accredited women's division race, thanks to the petition of Nina Kusick. And she had gone before the uh, AAU in late late 1971. She brought the petition uh, to accredit or sanction, as they say, but accredit women's marathons, which they did. And then fittingly, as you know, she won it in 1972. So she was really the first official woman to run and win the Boston Marathon prior to that time from all the time from 66 to through 71, it was um, what is now called the pioneer women's division race. Right, I I love your, that you had enough vision, like what you just showed me with that sculpture to imagine in a time when women were um, seen as so, as sort of as you described as often soft and, you know, and that was what we associated with femininity. And then that you had this vision of like a strong and beautiful woman and turned it into a sculpture. I love that. Um, what would you, before we go, I would ask you like, what would you tell our audience? What would be your best advice for women now who perhaps are trying to do something and they don't have role models like you, um, or who are, feeling discouraged in their environment? I think a lot of women are trying to be something that they're not. They think they have to look like a model or they think they have to have their hair in a certain way. They have to have a certain kind of clothes and so forth. I, the best thing a woman can be is be her authentic self and, and follow her inner passions. And, and, and affirm her own autonomy in, in a way that, that empowers herself to be who she really is. And I truly believe everybody, men and women, have something to give the world. They came here, in a sense, 
to give the world a gift. And so many people are, millions of people all around the world and all around this country, they are doing good things for other people quietly, privately. You know, it's like uh, ordinary people are extraordinary, whether they're teaching school or driving trucks. And, it, and don't get trapped by these stereotypes. Like I've said this before, if a, if a woman wants to drive a truck, she's no less of a woman. If a, if a man wants to knit doilies, he's no less of a man. And men and women can, they don't have to fit into these stereotypes. They can be who they truly are. And so I think women in particular have a tough time with their bodies and they, they feel they have to look a certain way. They don't have to look a certain way. Just look who, as who you are and be who you are and, and you know, speak the truth and say, you know, feel what you feel and, 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 and uh, just relax, I guess, <laughs> and be yourself. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love that. Bobby, thank you so much for coming on and for sharing your story and your vast wisdom. Um, I'm so impressed by you and, and your way of being your authentic self throughout your life. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. And uh, I'd love to follow up with you and keep in touch and let me know how things go. Absolutely. Whether you run, ride, hike, or swim, you understand what it means to push harder, reach farther, and go the extra mile. This relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build endurance, boost energy, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker to your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist in your pocket. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash feisty. That's insidetracker.com forward slash feisty. Media's Title IX series is proudly partnered with Vela Rosa. Vela Rosa is a women-owned and operated cycling apparel company that creates mix and match cycling wear to make women feel comfortable, confident, and beautiful. Created by two avid women cyclists, they know the importance of high-performance biking shorts and jerseys that fit a woman's body. It doesn't work to shrink and pink men's gear and expect it to work for women. Bella Rosa believes cycling wear should be fun, comfortable, and visible. You want to be bright and to be bold and be seen. Vela Rosa's collections are designed to mix and match with coordinating kit pieces that allow women to get more mileage out of their cycling wardrobes. New for 2022, a completely redesigned cycling tank, reflective safety tabs on all of their tops, and more long sleeve options for those chilly morning rides. You'll find tons of great reviews on their site from women who love Vela Rosa gear. Their five-star rated shorts prove that when women try them, they love the fit particularly the yoga waistband, power leg bands, and the super soft, all black, what stains, chamois. Whether you like to ride pavement, gravel, dirt, or your local trail system, cycling is about the community. Join the sisterhood of cyclists that is Vela Rosa today. Enter FEISTY15, that's all caps, F-E-I-S-T-Y, number 15, at checkout, and receive 15% off of order of full-priced cycling wear at velarosacycling.com today. women need more protein. And if you're training hard, you need a lot more, like upwards of 100 grams a day or even more. That can be a challenge to get through meals alone some days, so a good protein powder like Neurofi Plus from Prevenex can help. Neurofi Plus is a vegan-friendly protein powder that is low in sugar, high in essential branched chain amino acids, and contains probiotics and digestive enzymes, so it's easy to digest and doesn't cause the gassy feeling you can get with other protein powders. 
Neurofi Plus is laboratory tested and contains no soy, gluten, dairy, preservatives, or artificial sweeteners. Listeners of this series can get 15% off their first time purchase by using the code TITLE9, that's all caps and the number 9, at checkout. Just go to Prevenex.com, P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com, and use the code TITLE9 at checkout for 15% off your first purchase. If you don't like it, the company offers a 100% money-back guarantee on all of their products within 30 days, no questions asked. Again, use the code TITLE9 at checkout for 15% off your first-time purchase at Prevenex.com. That was so moving and so awesome. Like, that one's going to stick with me for quite a while. I'm, it's a great job. Great job, Sarah, by the way. Oh, thank um, you. Oh, I'm glad to hear you say that, actually. Sorry, because I uh, I was a bit concerned when I recorded that, that like, you know, because Bobby just has this way, it's like this free expression. Like, she's just like this one train of consciousness, which I love. Like, I was just kind of like metaphorically sitting at her feet, kind of, kind of going, okay, what else, what other wisdom do you have for me? You know, um, so I, I'm really glad that that you agree. And I hope that our audience agrees as well. Um, but Oh, I, I loved it. It was the wis- It was the wisdom of a woman who has lived that life and have left that legacy and all of that space. She deserved every second of it. So that was that was wonderful. Who do we have coming up next week? So next week we have Markeisha Henderson, and she is the athletics director at Agnes Scott College. And I think you know some of we've we have a couple different i think three different athletics athletics direct athletic directors whoa say that three times fast um who are interviewed here and i think part of like the legacy of title nine has to do with the coaching and even like this and even sports leadership and women getting into more of those roles so i'm really excited to hear about that and the interview is done by shauna payne gold who is our the a podcast host for feisty with uh unfazed and I love that podcast she works full-time in the DEI space and so she is Shauna's so smart and full of wisdom so I'm really excited to hear from those two next week excellent tune in then nine voices for title nine powered by inside tracker is a feisty media production this episode was produced and edited by the amazing Amelia Perry <laughs>